This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week on Millennial. I hope President Biden signs the bill with a rainbow pen. Y'all, should we send the White House a multicolored gel pen pack? Oh, that's a fun idea. I also just remember that single pen that had like eight different colors in it and you would press down which oh, color. Remember yeah. that? I like that they are bringing awareness around this, even though these people might not feel particularly passionate. It's their staff behind the scenes who might be pushing the issue. You don't think Chuck Schumer is a Swifty? No, no, I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think he really goes to any concerts. Probably not. Think about how fucked up it is when the same person buys Boardwalk and Park Place. Ticketmaster should be on the new Monopoly board. And it can just have a stamp that's like, hey, I'm the problem, it's me. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Millennial, the home of pretend adulting and real talk. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. And we were off for a week because of Thanksgiving. And I think many speculated that Twitter would not last through (laughs) the preceding two-week period, but it did. However, on November 17th, that was a Thursday night, if you loaded up Twitter, everyone was operating under the assumption that Twitter was about to shut down for good. There was the latest report about mass firings at Twitter, and somebody, a a reporter at The Verge said that uh, Twitter had a high likelihood of crashing very soon because so many staff were missing. And everybody just thought like, well, this is it. I'm going to say my goodbyes. And all you saw in your Twitter feed was people saying goodbye. I even published a farewell tweet. I went back into my Twitter archive and I quote tweeted my very first tweet, which said something like, I'm going to give this Twitter thing a try. Hope it's fun. So I quote tweeted that and I was like, I'm going to bring this full circle. Yeah, it was fun. People thought I was leaving. I'm I'm not actually leaving, but I'm just going to retweet that every time everybody thinks Twitter's about to end. I saw it happening and then I thought, well, I might as well just like get in on the action for funsies. I also don't think that Twitter's really going to go anywhere. And since there's been some talk of my Twitter drafts before on the show, I thought it would be really funny to screenshot a, a choice selection and share them with my timeline. It's all <laughs> such trash. Like they're not great drafts, but yeah, they are. I have to save the spicy ones for another time. <laughs> what were some of your drafts? Oh, I can't remember. I would have to go look. As the youth would say, he really put his whole crusty into that song. <laughs> my uncaffeinated ass thought this was a sec- sexy Snape cosplay. 
What was that about? Do you know? I have no idea. I mean, I can open the tweet and see. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. I mean, does it even give you a date when you composed it? That would be nice. Um, No, but it, I assume that there was like a picture attached. <laughs> Maybe there wasn't. Let's see. Oh, actually, it was I was going to retweet MuggleCast. Oh. It's not a new Fantastic Beast movie unless Credence has a new do. Oh. Oh, I remember <laughs> writing that tweet, actually. There you go. <laughs> it's true. He has a new haircut with every movie. People were dropping uh, nudes or like sexy photos into the timeline at the last moment. I saw a bunch of people saying like, oh, now that Twitter's ending, we should all confess our Twitter crushes. And I thought that that was a, a hair too far. <laughs> oh, really? I think that's <laughs> yeah. fun. I didn't confess my For me. Twitter crush. but. <laughs> Pam's like, where do I begin? <laughs> yeah, so Twitter's here to stay. And actually, in After Dark today, we're going to talk more about Twitter alternatives. One of our listeners actually asked us if we've been keeping an eye on the Twitter alternatives because people are still concerned. And we could also talk about why we think Twitter might not ultimately go away and why millennials are, in particular, very prepared for a potentially losing Twitter since, you know, we've gone through this before. Laura, it looks like you were up to something too on Twitter. Yeah. So I I missed the Twitter apocalypse um, on the 17th of November in the year of our Lord, 2022. I was sleeping. I, at that point, had stepped away from Twitter because I was so frustrated with it, if y'all remember. So I didn't even have the app on my phone at that point. But I am back on it. I can't quit you. (laughs) But what I did do last night, and it actually made my feed a much more bearable place to be, I went through and I blocked a whole bunch of people. (laughs) Because Mm. I don't know about y'all, but it feels like over the last couple of weeks, thank you, Elon, the right-wing grifters are just like everywhere with their shitty takes. And I'm like, you know what? Post your shitty takes. I don't give a damn, but I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. It just pisses me off. It ruins my enjoyment of the app. So I went through and blocked all of them. (laughs) So like senators, talking heads, governors, like all of them. I was just get the fuck out of here. Because if there's anything satisfying, it did. Because honestly, if there is anything newsworthy of note about any of those people, it's going to make the news. I don't need to see Jim Jordan's shitty takes on Twitter. I've seen enough of them. Right. <laughs> and done. it sucks that those get pushed into your feed, but I guess yeah. the algorithm is showing like popular tweets right? and thinks you want to see all that political stuff. Well, so. and the thing is, I, you know, I guess this was a mistake, but I do follow some Republicans because I'm like, oh, there's your, I yeah. mean, well, my governor's a Republican. My former senator's former being the operative word here, are Republicans. And although I vehemently disagree with their ideologies, I still wanted to be up on what was well, going yeah, on. Of course. Know your enemy, right? Yeah, exactly. But now I'm just like, there's no point. Why did you decide you had to come back to Twitter? Were you just missing like getting the news through Twitter? For anybody who like isn't into Twitter, what what brought you back? Yeah, it was it was getting the news and sort of, you know, having my finger on the pulse of what was going on in the world. Um, but I have to say just the amount of grifters that it feels like have taken over at least my feed. I don't know if anyone else is feeling this. It felt like I wasn't able to 
use Twitter the way that it was intended or the way that I originally used to use it because it was just so full of shitty hot take after shitty hot take. Once I blocked all those people, though, that got a lot better. Yeah, I guess I get a little bit of that if people are like retweeting it into my feed and like want to comment on it. I've said before I use Tweetbot and it's a straight reverse chronological order of feed. It's not it, there's no algorithm involved. It's just like here are the most recent tweets. And I love it for that reason. There's no advertising either. Um, you pay like I, I they have they have some, of course. What app doesn't now some annual subscription, but it's worth it to me because even though it is missing some Twitter features like polls, it is a very clean feed. And so I think I avoid the grifters and a lot of the bullshit that way. I may have to do that. Although I will say you're probably seeing fewer advertisers on Twitter these days because something like the top 100 advertisers on Twitter have left. Including Apple. Mm -hmm. Yeah, including Apple and uh, a few other high profile companies. But what's funny is seeing all of the weird ads that are left. (laughs) Have y'all noticed any of this? I'm like, what is that? There's a lot of really obscure listicles, like, you yes. know, sites that pay to promote their stuff. It's like wannabe BuzzFeed. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Basically. Apple, I saw, was 4% of advertising revenue for Twitter. So to lose them, 4% isn't huge. But if other advertisers are seeing that story, they're going to be like, well, if Apple the kings of marketing are pulling out of Twitter. Maybe we should pull out as well. Yeah. My favorite is the assertion that Apple pulling out of advertising on Twitter is Apple trying to censor free speech. Yeah, no. One of my favorite shit takes from Elon, who is also (laughs) someone I blocked. He's trying to start a war with Apple, and he it's is, uh, man. not going to go well because Apple is allowed to put their advertising dollars wherever they want, and um, that's that's the free market. Yeah, that they profess to love so fucking much. It's especially funny because it would actually be the argument should be the other way around. So, like, but this would only makes uh, this would only work if Twitter was considered a, a news organization. So, like, if Twitter was classified as a news organization, which most social media platforms are not and that's why they can get away with doing some stuff that like say the new york times can't um and they wanted to uh prohibit apple from advertising then apple might have a case but it would definitely not be the other way around like elon is claiming (laughs) it is so that's uh pretty funny but i'm sure he's also just butthurt because they were wasn't there a headline about how apple's contemplating taking twitter off of its app store Well, that too. And that's a whole other discussion. I don't think we should get into it today. But I will just say that Elon claims that Apple is threatening to pull Twitter off of the App Store. If they are truly threatening to pull Twitter off the App Store, I think it's because they're concerned about moderation on Twitter. They're not going to do it just because they don't like Elon. That's just idiotic. And they have to have a reason to do it. Moderation would be a good reason if there's truly no moderation on Twitter. But anyway... We'll talk more about Twitter in today's After Dark and Twitter alternatives. Twitter might not have anything together right now, but the Senate has at least one thing together. They have passed the Respect for Marriage Act by uh, a 61 to 36 votes. So several Republicans voted yes as well. And now it goes to the House where it will most likely pass. And we spoke about the details in our last episode. It's a good start for a bill. 
And it is a way to prevent the Supreme Court from undoing gay or interracial marriage in this country, which people are very concerned about them trying to uh, undo. But there is room for improvement in the bill. And I think, Laura, as you said a couple of weeks ago, this might just be a stepping stone for more protections for LGBTQ people. Agreed. I hope President Biden signs the bill with a rainbow pen or maybe one color for each letter in his name. Should we? Yeah, because they do use a separate pen for each letter, right? Because they give the pens out to people who attend the signing ceremony. Y'all, should we send the White House a (laughs) multicolored gel pen pack? Oh, that's a fun idea. And encourage them to sign this. Yeah. With rainbow beauty. Yeah, that's a good idea. I also just remember that single pen that had like eight different colors in it and you would press down which color. Remember that? That was so cool. That's a good one. Maybe we should send that for Christmas to Joseph Robinette Biden. Please, (laughs) please sign this into law with rainbows. How long do you think they would hold that? pen for surveillance like is it really a pen (laughs) oh probably forever he'll be out of office by the time he gets it yeah but this is very good to see especially in light of this terrible shooting that happened in colorado springs a little over a week ago several people were shot and killed in a lgbtq nightclub the day before The nightclub was going to have some events for trans people. So, of course, you know, very upsetting and a reminder that while we do get good news out of the Senate and we do see this country shifting more and more towards equality for queer people, there still are very disturbed people out there that we need to keep an eye out for. And luckily, there's some amazing stories coming out of this nightclub shooting it could have been a lot worse so while losing these lives is absolutely awful at least there were some very brave people in this nightclub who stood up to this shooter including one initially it was reported to be a uh, drag queen but it was later reported this was a trans person who took their heel and stomped on this fuckface's face and that i mean is symbolic of so many things of what LGBTQ people have to face right now. It's also just a reminder, because if you were watching Twitter or the news in the days following this tragedy, you'll see a number of conservative ideologues, some of them hold elected office, continuing to spew hate speech against the LGBTQ community. And it's just a reminder that elections have consequences. And if these are not people that you want at the helm of the country, please vote. And a reminder to Tucker Carlson, et cetera, et cetera, that their words have consequences. Yep. That they're inciting their supporters. We don't know the full details around the shooting yet, but I think one can safely assume that this person was reading many narratives about queer people that sent them down a very dark path. And finally, one other political story, and then we'll we'll get into our main subject today. The investigation into Trump's handling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago now has a special counsel. This broke right before our Thanksgiving break. So Laura Pam and I did a breaking news installment on our Patreon for Bay Patrons in which we talk about what a special counsel means for the investigation. So Bay Patrons can check that out. 
we try to do these breaking news installments whenever we can get together after a developing story and we know we won't have time to talk about it on uh public millennial so check that out and we really appreciate your support over on the patreon so now we're gonna do one kind of pretty big discussion today but we're gonna break it into three pillars we're gonna talk about Ticketmaster. Then we're going to talk about monopolies, and then we're going to talk about the Biden administration's recent promise to fight fees. They're all tied together, and we'll start with Ticketmaster because there is a lot of news around Ticketmaster recently. This isn't going to be just a discussion around Taylor Swift, though, just the larger problems with Ticketmaster. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that even though we uh, anchored the start of this discussion around Taylor Swift, it really isn't a story about her, and it has the potential to affect nearly every major artist that does tour, which is why even music fans that don't listen to Taylor Swift have no interest in attending a concert of hers are looking to what happened when her tickets went on sale and also are looking to what has transpired since then, uh, specifically with some of the more legal stuff that we're going to get to towards the uh, back half of this discussion. So in case you've been living under a rock for the last couple of weeks, the tickets for Taylor Swift's Eras tour did go on sale and it was a total, total clusterfuck. It was nearly impossible to get tickets for this concert. And there are a number of things that happened that kind of led to this being a really disastrous launch for Ticketmaster specifically. But the long and short of it is that it kind of started when Ticketmaster said they were giving out presale codes codes based on the demand for each venue. So they've been doing this thing called uh, Verified Fan Presale for the past few years. Basically, nearly every artist that goes through Ticketmaster requires you to register to verify, and then Ticketmaster goes through and dishes out these presale codes. And that should be the only way that you're able to move forward with uh, buying for presale. Oftentimes, too, um, depending on the act, they'll also require you to just have a code to join the general presale as well. And Ticketmaster states that this system is put in place to ensure that more tickets get into the hands of fans. But obviously, that doesn't completely cut out scalpers because you know, as with the case of these Taylor Swift tickets, we've already seen tickets going for like tens of thousands of dollars on resale. And it so. really, really hurts when you get rejected. When Ticketmaster tells you you're not a verified fan, you're fake as fuck. And then you see right, all these exactly. scalpers get them anyway. Mm-hmm. This system has to be fine tuned better. There's got to be a better way. Totally agree. So Ticketmaster is supposed to open its site up to 1.5 million fans. uh, But according to the CEO of Liberty Media, who ran his mouth in an interview while all of this was going on, what actually ended up happening was that there were 14 million people, including bots, who were trying to join the queue just for pre-sale. So this is not even including the general sale or the Capital One exclusive sale that was supposed to happen after this. And again, like, even though this is 
specific to Taylor Swift's tour, this is kind of like the process that happens for every major artist as well. So it's kind of like a universal situation. In a statement released towards the end of the week, Ticketmaster then said that over 3.5 million people registered for verified fan presale codes. And then per their disastrous calculations, they sent out 1.5 million codes based on the fact that historically around 40% of invited fans actually show up and buy tickets, and also that their statistics show that most only purchase an average of three tickets. At the same time, they allowed a maximum of six tickets to be purchased per pre-sale code. So I don't know what they thought was going to happen, especially coming out of a pandemic when a lot of these major artists have not toured in like over three years. So... And obviously, you would assume that Taylor Swift fans are different in terms of the average statistic, like 40% of invited fans show up. I'm going to guess for Taylor Swift, it's like 80%. Right. And that 20% just forgot that the odds sale. This new album she just released in November, breaking records left and right. Her Lover Fest, which was supposed to happen during the pandemic years, was canceled. So you already have like a fan base that was supposed to go to that that is now trying to get tickets to this new tour when there is a plethora of new fans based on the fact that she's crossed over to a new genre with folklore and evermore. So it's just like a recipe for a disaster. Um, and that's basically... The long and short of it, Ticketmaster released two separate statements, and the first one went off so poorly that they ended up deleting it and then waiting an <laughs> extra day to release a second statement. Um, I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly what they changed, but they clearly went through it with a fine-tooth comb and realized that they needed to probably um, seem more profusely apologetic because health has no fury like a swifty scorn so they said quote historically we've been able to manage huge volume coming into the site to shop for tickets however this time a staggering number of bot attacks as well as fans who didn't have codes drove unprecedented traffic to our site resulting in 3.5 billion total system requests four times our previous peak so that is what they're blaming on the site crashing multiple times, people seemingly in the process of checking out only to have tickets disappear from their carts. Uh, a lot of fans getting booted out of the presale. Some fans who were supposed to have like boosts to help them get to the front of the line based on the fact that they had, you know, purchased tickets to the last tour that was canceled, saying that they were like really far back in line and couldn't even get tickets. So again, just to reiterate, it was a big ass mess and a huge PR nightmare for everybody involved. I think that Andrew put in a note here about how verified fan and dynamic pricing are bullshit. And I totally agree. Can you kind of uh, give us an explanation of, of what dynamic pricing is for anybody that doesn't know? Yeah. So you mentioned verified fan is a few years old. I think dynamic pricing, otherwise known as Putnam pricing on Ticketmaster, that's a relatively newer system as well. Basically, what happens is the price of the tickets change depending on the amount of demand at any given moment. So I think I mentioned maybe on the main show, maybe in After Dark, that uh, Bruce started using the Platinum tickets 
on his most recent tour and those prices skyrocketed. My understanding, though, is that artists, A, they don't have to use platinum tickets. They they can do away with that. Bruce did have some flat rate tickets, but then they had the platinum. Another thing is you can probably, as the artist, set the limit. Like, I don't want platinum prices getting any higher than X. And it seems like some artists don't use that. They just want to see how high the, the system will actually let the tickets go. And artists will tell you, well, this way it lowers the chances of scalpers because if the prices are skyrocketing, the scalper isn't going to buy a super high price ticket because then they won't be able to flip it and make any money. But this is also screwing over the average fan because then they are not going to be able to afford that ticket. So the system just sucks for the consumer. It does. It's evil that Ticketmaster came up with this idea. And yes, scalpers are an issue, but we'll talk in a little bit about how some artists are actually trying to fight scalpers because there are solutions, but it's going to take some bold moves. Yeah. And just to illustrate your point, Andrew, I think it's a combination of, you know, Ticketmaster and Live Nation being out of touch. It may even be an issue of of artists being a little bit out of touch about how much money we're talking about here because Ticketmaster put out some stat. I think it was after the Springsteen issue that people were up in arms about saying that one person of the tickets sold were under $100 in cost and only 18% of tickets sold were over $1,000 in cost, trying to illustrate that the vast majority of tickets sold were between $101 and $1,000, as though that isn't a lot of money to a normal fucking person. Right. Yeah. Also, somebody like a Bruce Springsteen is touring arenas, 18% of seats uh, out of a, an entire arena tour is a lot of seats. Yeah. And I think there's greed going on as well with these artists. I think maybe to some extent, the artists don't fully grasp the situation. It's a, probably a tough system to get your head around. Yeah. And what they're doing is they're eating up all the revenue that scalpers would potentially receive if they were to flip and receive the tickets. And there is an argument for the artist should be able to raise the ticket prices so that the scalpers can't get that revenue. Because why should the scalpers be making that money if somebody is willing to purchase that ticket? The artist should be getting that because they're the one performing. The scalpers just sitting there stealing tickets from fans. So there is that argument, but that's the only semi-decent one. Yeah, and something I will say, this kind of jumps ahead a little bit, but I think it's worth saying here, um, lest we kind of fall into a trap of believing, oh, all artists must be greedy. Um, Most artists who are performing at... Ticketmaster, Live Nation, you know, potato, potato. Um, most artists who are performing in those kinds of venues have a manager assigned to them by Live Nation who is kind of helping them dictate the terms of their show. So it's not just the artist making these decisions. It's the manager that's being assigned from Live Nation. It's then the artist team. So there really is a a whole army of people involved in making these decisions. And to that point, you know, um, kind of backtracking a little bit, Taylor Swift also released a statement a couple of days after the fiasco took place. 
And one of the interesting things that she included in the statement was that she had brought a lot of procedures in-house to her team to avoid stressing out her fan base, but that Ticketmaster repeatedly assured her and her team that they could handle the volume of people coming onto their site to buy tickets. Um, I feel like that's a little bit misleading because by the time you get to somebody of her stature where you need to tour arenas, most likely a lot of those arenas are being managed, if not owned by Live Nation, which is also merged with Ticketmaster. So it's really, really hard to tour without going through their system. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get into what monopolies are and things like that. On the subject of that, and also kind of touching on whether or not somebody like a Taylor Swift who has a lot more power than a smaller artist could launch, you know, a rival platform. The answer to that is like, maybe yes, but probably not, because it would be really hard to do that given the Live Nation and Ticketmaster merger. Uh, like I said, Live Nation owns and manages a lot of the live music venues in America, and they also own and manage uh, quite a few of the larger ones abroad. And so that really leaves very little wiggle room for artists and even venues to work with in terms of getting their tickets out there to sell. As a little bit of a sidebar here, obviously, you know, the Taylor Swift ticket controversy has really kind of lit a fire under the ass of Congress and the Department of Justice to try and do something about this. But issues with Ticketmaster are not a new thing. In the 90s, Pearl Jam actually filed a complaint against Ticketmaster for anti-competitive marketing practices. And this was well before they merged with Live Nation. So we were already seeing a larger band having issues with how they were conducting their practice, even back in the 90s. Unfortunately, the Department of Justice failed to bring an antitrust case to the company. And Pearl Jam and Pearl Jam ended up backing off after that and agreeing to work with them, though they did state when they decided to back off that at the time, um, it was pretty much impossible to tour without them. And I think we're kind of seeing a similar thing happening now, which is that it's pretty much impossible to tour without Ticketmaster and Live Nation. Yeah. Yep. And you mentioned Congress a, a couple of minutes ago. Uh, many senators and uh, representatives tweeted about the fiasco, particularly pertaining to Taylor Swift. But they also reminded everybody that this is an issue that's been going on for a while. And while I was reading those tweets, you know, AOC is a real one. I believe that she's actually behind her Twitter. But some of these older gentlemen in the Senate who are tweeting about the Taylor Swift concert, I'm just thinking about like their 29 year old employees who actually handle the social media apps, and they're the ones who are, who are who are sending out all these messages because they know that this will get their constituents to actually pay attention to what's going on in Congress, and this could actually maybe help them get a re reelected in future years. So I like that they are bringing awareness around this, even though these people might not feel particularly passionate. It's their staff behind the scenes who might be pushing the issue. You don't think Chuck Schumer is a Swifty? 
No, no, I don't think so. I don't think he really goes to any concerts. Probably not anymore. I know that uh, AOC tweeted a couple times about this, and somebody responded to her saying, "Like, oh, you couldn't get tickets too, huh?" Which I thought was pretty. <laughs> funny. That's so funny. It was impossible, and it's been impossible for so many concerts over the last ten, twenty years, as more and more people have come to depend on the internet to sell tickets i mean you know back in the day my understanding is you had to go to the venue to get a ticket to the show and you had to wait in a real line yeah or you had to call on the phone to get the ticket you can't do that anymore my first concert was in sync um for the no strings attached tour and we went to a tower records to buy tickets and they had them in a little booklet and you would just like say, you know, they would say these are the tickets that we have left, like physical tickets, and then you would yeah. pick your seats, and That's that was so that. Funny. And then obviously there were people on the phone doing, you know, the same thing, but remotely, or like they would, they had a little machine and they would like print them out after you picked your seats. So I heard on another podcast last week who was also talking about this. There used to be a Ticketmaster booth in Kohl's. Macy's the used to have store. one. Oh, yeah. I used to, I used to, until like, but honestly, like, probably until right before Live Nation and Ticketmaster merged, um, because I, I would actually, I preferred to buy my tickets through Live Nation because their service fees were notoriously way lower, even in like oh. the mid two thousands. But you could still just Not like anymore. walk up to the venue if you lived really close by, and I was usually just going to like a pop punk show so tickets were maybe like 20 bucks you could literally just like go to the venue and just buy them at face value too yeah to avoid you know like the two dollar processing fee or like the two dollar print fee now you can't even get a physical ticket to most shows i was actually looking because i um i have an event coming up on Ticketmaster because again like you can't avoid it and the I don't know if you guys have like used Ticketmaster, like when was the last time you used Ticketmaster, but now their justification for having e-tickets is that it basically works like Google Authenticator works. So like your barcode is constantly refreshing, supposedly so that nobody can steal your ticket. And has that ever been an issue? No, probably I've never not. had to worry about my ticket being stolen. But like, it sounds like the argument around voter fraud, like it, it doesn't actually happen, but yeah. they make it up just to uh, try mm-hmm. and... Uh, and they were like, and this is why you can't even like, you can't print out your ticket. And this is why you can't show us a screenshot because like your code is constantly changing. It feels like they're putting way too much effort in trying to advance that technology versus trying to figure out what's happening on the back end for these bigger shows. Yeah, I think actually that's a really good um, transition for us to talk about the Justice Department's uh, antitrust investigation into Live Nation and Ticketmaster. Um, little bit of background here. Antitrust laws prevent unlawful mergers and business practices in general terms, leaving courts to decide which ones are illegal based on the facts of each case. Fun fact, this antitrust investigation, um, the whole inquiry actually predates 
the Taylor Swift tickets presale debacle. Um, Ticketmaster and Live Nation actually merged in 2010 um, and are now known, their parent company is Live Nation Entertainment. And the investigation is really focused on whether Live Nation Entertainment has abused its power over the multi-billion dollar live music industry. From a New York Times article that we can certainly source in the show notes, members of the antitrust division staff at the Justice Department have in recent months contacted music venues and players in the ticket market asking about Live Nation's practices and the wider dynamics of the industry. Um, The inquiry appears to be broad, looking at whether the company maintains a monopoly over the industry. Um, So it's very clear that the Justice Department is kind of (laughs) casting a wide net here. But when you look at this situation on its face, it's very clear why this needs to happen. It might even raise questions about why the Justice Department let this merger happen in the first place. Um, There was actually quite a bit of outcry in the music community when this was happening because artists, producers, fans, performers, they all knew they could kind of see the writing on the wall, as it were. In response to this, Live Nation actually shared a statement um, at the beginning of November about the inquiry, saying the Department of Justice itself recognized the competitive nature of the concert promotion business at the time of the Live Nation Ticketmaster merger. That dynamic has not changed. That is a statement from a lawyer, if I ever saw one. Yeah. And to your point about the reporting uh, saying that they're trying to cast a wide net right now, this just tells you that it's very, very early days in this investigation. They don't know which direction they're going to take it. They're just kind of looking around and seeing what's up. So it's nice to see that there is some activity happening, but we can't count on anything happening soon. No, I don't think anything will happen soon. And as a matter of fact, I think this may be one of the more high profile antitrust investigations that we're hearing about in the news, because we'll chat a little bit later about a couple of other examples that have happened in recent history that really didn't seem to make headlines. Um, So it'll be interesting to watch how this goes so that we can kind of learn more about what to expect around these kinds of things and, and, you know, really how far the Justice Department's and our court's reaches are when it comes to monopolies. But speaking of monopolies, I thought we could chat quickly about why might Live Nation Entertainment be a monopoly? Apart from the obvious sort of like face value example of them being the parent company of Live Nation and Ticketmaster, um, wanted to point out a couple of things that we've already touched on. Live Nation Entertainment owns concert venues. They also promote tours. They sell concert tickets. And all of this gives them near exclusive control of the live music industry and just leaves very little room for competitors. We chatted a few moments ago about how aghast we were about dynamic pricing. So we don't need to revisit that. But something that I wanted to point out here is that it's actually almost impossible for artists to tour without holding shows 
at Live Nation venues because Live Nation controls around 80% of concert venues in America. So for Taylor Swift or another major artist to actually tackle this issue successfully, it wouldn't be just launching TaylorTix.com and suddenly she has her own ticketing platform. She has to perform at these venues that can hold the number of fans that she has. And when you take out 80% of some of the biggest venues in the country, you got nothing left. Taylor also has to build her own venues too, or tell everybody to come over to a park and just, you know, watch from a quarter mile away. <laughs> like, it's just not realistic for, it, even even if it was just simply inventing a ticketing system, it would take years and years to refine that, to get it to the place where it could handle the load that a Taylor Swift fan base is going to put on it. Nothing feels realistic right now in terms of near-term solutions until the government maybe breaks them up or does something else about this. Doing a little bit more digging on this story, I was curious about why the Justice Department even let this merger happen in the first place, because it's barely 10 years later, and they're already running an antitrust investigation into them. So it looks like when they approved that merger in 2010, the Justice Department did require Live Nation to sell off some parts of its business. And it also decreed that Live Nation could not threaten concert venues with losing access to its tours if those venues decided to use ticketing providers other than Ticketmaster. That requirement was um, instituted with uh, a 10-year time span, right? So was supposed to go 2010 to 2020. And I'm imagining in 2020, it would have been re-upped or maybe, I don't know if there would have been a renegotiation. However, <laughs> in 2019, the Justice Department found that Live Nation had actually repeatedly violated this provision. Um, so Ticketmaster's chief competitor, AEG, actually told officials at the Justice Department that venues it manages that serve Atlanta, Las Vegas, Minneapolis, Salt Lake City, Louisville, Oakland, were all told that they would lose valuable shows if Ticketmaster was not used as a vendor. Yikes. That may also be where the DOJ is like finding its in with this antitrust investigation. Yeah, that's They're some like, wait, this fruit. is fishy. And the rest of this doesn't pass the sniff test, I think, as fans, you know, it's it's not a great experience to feel like I'm being price gouged to go to a concert. I fully expect to spend a little bit of money. But when you walk away from an event between the parking and the tickets and the fees associated and God knows whatever else. And you're like, wait, I've spent like three times the cost of the ticket just to come see this show. Don't it, forget the the $15 beers. Yeah. It just, uh, we saw Dua Lipa a few months ago here in Vegas. The beers were so expensive. Yeah. It just doesn't incentivize you to want to go. Like, I'll stay home and watch Elton John's live concert on <laughs> Disney+. Plus. Well, and to that point, I think that the reason I haven't gone to shows in a while is because my brain is always computing how much the cost is going to be for everything. And it starts with, and maybe this is where we can uh, funnel into something that I know that you wanted to bring up, Andrew, but it always starts with 
the service fees, like how much is being like, how much are these tickets being reportedly sold for? But then how much is Ticketmaster going to tack on for service fees? Right. And one of the most ridiculous aspects of the Ticketmaster service fees is they're based on a percentage of the price of the ticket. So the service fee climbs the more and more the ticket costs. But that's total bullshit because it's like, well, what is the service fee actually going to? It doesn't cost more for Ticketmaster to sell me a ticket that's $800 than one that is $200. So it's not actually a service fee. It's a worse scraping some off the top and then some just to squeeze more money out of you. If that was like a flat $10 service fee rate, okay, that makes sense. But if you spend $800 on a ticket, you're going to then be paying another $200 plus taxes on the service fee. It's outrageous. We'll talk about how artists are trying to combat fees and high prices in a moment. But first, let's take a moment to hear from this week's sponsor, Expedition Roasters, so we can pay for future concert tickets. They are back to sponsor this week's episode, and they combine great tasting coffee with fandom and pop culture. They offer small batch roasted brews using premium coffee beans. All their coffees are inspired by pop culture. They actually just added a couple for winter. There's the happiest brew that ever sailed, whose name will remind you of a certain theme park ride in Disney parks. And it's got a chocolate candy cane flavor. I just ripped that one open the other day, and I am loving it so far. Perfect for this time of year. And then there's the jolliest bunch of a-holes, which has an (laughs) eggnog flavor. So if you love eggnog, That one is definitely going to be for you. And these flavors, they don't hit you over the head with flavor. They're just a little, a little bit. They give you the notes and then some, just so you can still enjoy the taste of the actual coffee. And the flavors are never overpowering. It's really good stuff. They have flavors for all taste preferences. So you've got to check them out, no matter what type of coffee drinker you are. Guest artists worked with Expedition Roasters to create unique, awesome artwork as well for their bags. So it's kind of a, an entire experience. It's not just about the unique tastes and the, the great flavors that they offer, but it's also about the bag. They're just fun to display in your kitchen, especially if you love pop culture. And of course, we know all of our listeners do. This is a great holiday gift as well. So visit ExpeditionRoasters.com and use code COFFEEGEEKS for 15% off your order. Again, that's ExpeditionRoasters.com and use code COFFEEGEEKS for 15% off your order. We'll have a link in the show notes as well. So talking about artists trying to combat fees and high prices, Pam, I think you have kept an eye on Ed Sheeran, who actually has some great rules in place. Yeah, Ed Sheeran is uh, doing a lot, actually, to make sure that tickets for his concerts stay in the hands of fans. And I also wanted to bring up Ed Sheeran because he is a larger pop artist. So that is kind of proof that it's possible for larger acts to potentially implement uh, similar rules. Basically, what he has done is he's actually canceled thousands of tickets that were purchased by scalpers. And so his team is actively working to do that to make sure that the prices stay reasonable. Everybody who has an actual ticket to his show, in addition to canceling the 
the tickets and stuff like that. So everybody else that's left who's purchased the tickets to the show has to have an ID at the door. So that matches the ticket information as well. Um, he's also uh, required that a maximum of only four tickets is allowed to be purchased per person. I think that this is a big one too. I going back to Taylor Swift, I don't know how Ticketmaster thought that allowing people to buy up to six tickets per code was going to work out well in their favor based on, you know, how many pre-sale codes they sent out and stuff like that. But I think four is reasonable. Not to mention on Ticketmaster in the modern day Ticketmaster, when you get in, and this is nice in theory, you see a map of the venue and they're like, okay, pick your seat. And that's cool. But when thousands of people are currently looking at the seat chart, it's like playing whack-a-mole. These yes. little seats light up. And then as soon as you click on it, it disappears. It says this isn't available because somebody else somewhere else just clicked on the ticket. That it's- that process, I, I'm assuming that you know this from personal experience, that gives me too much anxiety. I'd rather just play roulette with Ticketmaster and tell them about where I'd want to sit and then just yeah. have them show me the tickets that are available. Because you're right. Like sometimes you think that you have like, say three dots in the same place. You have three people that want to go in your group. And by the time you get over to clicking on those dots, like two of them are gone or one of them is gone. Yeah, you're not going to be able to click all six. Yeah, like they're exactly. all you can't just do it in one click. It's going to be six clicks. The the good solution, I think what you're saying is like best available in this price range. So you say, hey, I can spend three hundred dollars on this ticket. Give me the best available. Exactly. And then you know, you'll know what area of the venue that will be in because you should know in advance how much each vet, uh, area is going to cost. The last thing he's doing is that he's making sure the fans that are then no longer able to go are still able to resell their tickets to his show. And he's been working with a website called Twickets to make sure that they're able to sell them at um, face value. And so it's not being like sold at an outrageous amount. That's awesome. This should be the solution. You cannot resell at anything higher than face value. Maybe like $50 higher or something. Um, and I also love that the scalper tickets were canceled. And I love that you have to have an actual ID at the door to use your tickets. They did try this on a broader scale a few years ago. I I think I had to do this for Bruce once or twice. And it's a good way to prevent people from flipping tickets. Yeah, I, I think that like something like that can work. I also kind of, I don't know. I, I'm kind of like back and I, I go I back see and the forth problems the with ID. it. Yeah. Because you might, something might happen. You might have to cancel yeah, going like, to the show. I what get if that. like, heaven forbid, like you lose your ID or something right before the show. And then like, what are you supposed to show? You know, I guess a passport, yeah. but like not everybody has one. Well, and some people just don't have IDs. Yeah, some people just don't have IDs. So it feels a little bit elitist. Show the confirmation receipt. I don't know. The show... They could do something. I mean, and then like maybe this is a good way for them to implement, you know, this like high tech Ticketmaster situation where like the code refreshes every couple seconds but even then like that also feels elitist because not everybody has a smartphone or like not everybody has a cell phone right i don't know there's probably not going to be like one perfect solution but it's nice to see that some people are trying he's trying a lot yeah and then garth brooks he has always kept his ticket prices very low on his most recent tour it was a flat rate of 95 dollars a ticket That's great. And I was also reading that. I don't think he does this anymore, but there was a time where he was doing multiple shows in a day as a way to cover 
of the demand that he had. He's one of the biggest country stars in the world, legendary act. Um, so he would do that as a way to fight scalpers. So between the flat rates and plenty of shows for all fans to attend and be able to get tickets to, that really helped the scalping situation. So jumping back to monopolies for a minute, and then we'll get we'll get to the Biden administration's fight over junk fees. Laura, there was one other monopoly monopoly you wanted to touch on. Yeah, and it, it's actually um, not a monopoly. It's it's a a would have been monopsony, but still exists in the same space. And I thought it would be interesting to talk about because it's an example of the Biden Justice Department actually being successful, blocking one of these mergers from happening. Um, So this was the attempted merger of publishing houses, Penguin Random House um, and Simon & Schuster. Penguin Random House wanted to buy Simon & Schuster. And just to illustrate um, how few um, companies, big companies there are in the publishing business, Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster are two members of what's called the Big Five of publishing, with the other three slots filled by HarperCollins, Hatchet, and Macmillan. And the Big Five control roughly 80% of trade market for books in the U.S. And Penguin Random House uh, already has a market share of 25% as of 2020, is the biggest one of all. Um, So I think hearing that, it's already, you know, I think something that would give consumers, authors, really anyone outside of these publishing houses pause because you're looking at these five large companies that control 80% of the trade market and see that Penguin Random House is already the biggest one of all of them. And they're wanting to buy Simon & Schuster to become even bigger. Um, What's really interesting about this was that this merger, the attempt at the merger actually began during the Trump administration. And an email with Simon & Schuster CEO Jonathan Karp actually leaked out where he was talking to an author um, at the time where he said, I'm pretty sure the Department of Justice wouldn't allow Penguin Random House to buy us, but that's assuming we still have a Department of Justice. So at least the CEO of Simon & Schuster at the time was seeing the potential financial benefit of this merger, but recognized that were the country piloted by somebody different, the Justice Department might not let this happen. However, a year later, when the Biden administration took over, um, the Justice Department actually filed suit against both Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster, um, as well as their parent companies, Bertelsmann and Viacom CBS. And in in terms of this case, the Justice Department was arguing that this merger would form, I think, a new word for a lot of people. It was a new word for me, certainly. Um, I'm revealing my ignorance here. It would it would form a monopsony. I didn't know that either. I didn't either. It's it's kind of like the opposite. Um, it's an unfair buying market that would drive down the money paid to authors, basically meaning that it's a market where there's only one buyer. Wow. Sounds like a terrible board game. Yeah. 
I do you think this was like the failed version of Monopoly? <laughs> they did that and they were like, no, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and that's not to say Monopoly's good either. I think we spoke about that a few weeks ago. But you know, like talking about Monopolies suddenly makes Monopoly as a board game make way more sense. And yeah, yes. you know, it's frustrating in a similar way, but I don't think that you know, obviously, what are kids going to know about real life monopolies? But it's a great way to kind of think about it in layman's terms, which yeah, is that monopoly I mean, sucks when everybody else has bought all the shit and then you have to keep paying money when you land on their spot. <laughs> think about how fucked up it is when the same person buys Boardwalk and Park Place. Right, exactly. <laughs> and then they start adding houses and apartments on there and you have to pay them more. Yeah. Ticketmaster should be on the new Monopoly board. Oh, my gosh. And it can just like have a stamp that's like, hey, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the interesting thing about monopsonies is that cases for these being brought to the Justice Department or rather the Justice Department bringing cases like these is extremely rare. I think it's a little bit harder for people to wrap their minds around and maybe even a little bit harder to prove. Um, but what the government argued here is that this merger would result in um, Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster controlling 50% of the market for anticipated top sellers, meaning that they would have been able to undercompensate authors on their advances due to a lack of publishing competition. If they were making up 50% of the market, how many other options do authors have when they're approaching publishing houses? This would have really allowed, yeah, it would have really allowed them to undershoot the, the fair and appropriate terms for an advance. And I'm also thinking with fewer publishers, just like fewer airlines, the prices for the consumer goes up as well, because one yep. publisher starts raising their prices, their book prices, and then others follow. And there's not another publisher that's saying, you know what? No, we're going to keep our prices lower as a way to get an edge. Our books have an edge over the others. Yeah. Well, and when there's when there's only one buyer or when there are very few buyers, they're the ones who get to set the terms for value, both on you know, the the purchasing end, but then on the selling end, mm-hmm. right? There's just not regulation. Um, what was really funny in reading about this case is that um, Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster continually tried to position themselves as scrappy underdogs whose merger would help authors <laughs> to push back against the almighty forces of Amazon. Okay. The funny thing about this... <laughs> is that the Justice Department's lawsuit revealed, quote, internal emails in which Penguin Random House's CEO, Marcus Dole, admits that he never, never bought into that argument and that one of the goals of the post-merger would be to become an exceptional partner to Amazon. Oh, my God. And this is why the government needs to step in from time to time, because it's just... What's happening behind the scenes is a whole different story. And of it course, really is. For, on the outside, they're going to be like, oh, oh, we're just a small little book company. Come on. Give us a break. We we can't get ahead. I think I can't uh, quote any off the top of my head, but companies will try to do this when they're about to go through a merger quite often. They'll try to downplay their size. Always. 
So that was just one example that I thought was really interesting, especially given that it had to do with a monopsony, which is not something I think we hear about very much, but also because the Justice Department ultimately won that lawsuit. Um, Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster are, of course, um, you know, talking about um, uh, lodging an appeal. So we'll see how that goes. Um, But it seems like a pretty solid case. And I thought just to kind of give everyone at home a little bit more to chew on, there are lots of different cases we could have talked about here today, but unfortunately, we don't have the airtime for it. If you're looking for some interesting history around um, the breakup of monopolies, I would encourage you to look up AT&T, as well as American Tobacco. Um, We can provide resources for those in the show notes. But I also wanted to note, I feel like this hasn't gotten reported very much. The Justice Department actually recently lost bids to stop the merger of U.S. sugar and Imperial sugar, as well as preventing United Health Group, who are the owners of United Healthcare, um, from acquiring Change Healthcare, which is a, a healthcare-based tech company. So Justice Department tried to stop those, was not successful. We'll include some more information in the show notes if you're interested in reading up. But I actually found this really interesting to read into. It is. Um, Because it is is a lot of um, kind of behind the scenes, to your point, Andrew, um, inside baseball that I don't think the average person hears about on their day to day. And whether you know it or not, it has a trickle down effect on you and how much things are costing you. Yep, exactly. That's why I find it fascinating. To wrap things up, I wanted to talk about the fight against junk fees. The Biden administration announced in late October that they're going to take on junk fees to help fight inflation. And to start, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau issued new guidance making it illegal for banks to charge overdraft fees when at the time of purchase, the bank website or ATM balance showed the customer had enough money in their accounts. It is also now unlawful for banks to charge a fee to a customer who deposits a check that bounces. Those are some nice first steps. I think we've all been there. We've gotten various fees, hit our bank statements, and we're like, what the fuck? What was this for? They just sneak them by you. Yeah. And I remember this happened to me once when I was in high school, when I had my first job at Target. And it was a situation where um, I had made a purchase when I had my bank statement showed that I had enough money in the account. Um, Clearly, I misjudged things a little bit. I was 16. And from there, a couple of other transactions hit my account several days after I made those purchases and the bank hit me with a fucking $35 overdraft fee, not just once, but for every single transaction. Yeah, it sucked. And when I went to them to try and dispute it, they were like, nope. (laughs) Wow. It was terrible. I don't bank with them anymore. Fuck you, Regions Bank. (laughs) <laughs> there, it's not the same example, but I have been in a couple of situations over the course of my life where I see a fee, and if I contact the bank, I think they will remove the fee. They'll be like, since you're a longtime customer, we'll let it go this time. So that's a little wreck for people. Like If you see a fee, you can dispute it. And even if technically they did have the right to impose that fee, they might be able to waive that fee. Uh, 
to to thank you for being a longtime customer. The bounce check one, that's I think that that's great because it's like it's not your fault if somebody gives you a check that bounces, right. you know, so why should you yeah. be punished for that? Yeah. Um. So further, there are now new rule requirements that require airline and online travel website to disclose fees for picking a seat, checking a bag and other add ons. I think we've all been there. I was actually going through this situation a few weeks ago with a smaller regional airline out here on the West Coast. You see a low price for a ticket and you're like, oh, great, $49. This is awesome. Then you click in and it's like, oh, you want to bring a carry on? Of course I do. That's another $50. And before you know it, your $50 ticket is like $150 just for the pleasure of bringing on a bag and maybe picking a seat. Do you want a drink too? Because there are airlines that will charge you to get a drink. And not like just like a water. Yeah, not a fun drink. I mean, like water, tea, Coke, whatever. I think Spirit does that. If you fly with them and you want any snack or anything while you're in flight, they charge you for it. It's deceiving because you see mm-hmm. the prices and then you get further along and then you're like, oh, well, now it's $100, but I don't know. I've gotten through this process already. Maybe I should just do it. Biden has said his broader plan would tackle hidden hotel booking fees, termination charges put in place by cable and internet companies, and other surprise charges that companies sneak in the bills because they can. And I think this is a great idea. Who could argue against this? I I like that they've already announced some tangible changes. A lot of this other stuff, I hope, isn't just pie-in-the-sky ideas. I hope they actually can take some serious action. I'm sure some of these companies, like airlines, will try to push back on some of the new rules that the Biden administration may lay out. But I thought we could talk about, let's just dream for a second, what are our dream junk fee eliminations? I think one of the biggest ones for me, and this has been a growing trend in the last like decade or so, amenity or resort fees at hotels. Mm -hmm. And these are what hotels tack on to your nightly room rate. Talking about here in Vegas, you cannot avoid these on the Vegas Strip anymore. Every hotel, like there's some really shitty hotels on the Strip, like Excalibur or Luxor. Um, Very old. They haven't updated the rooms. The rooms will be like $50. And then the resort fee is another 30. So you're almost doubling the nightly rate just in resort fees. And what do those cover? It's not good stuff like parking. It's, oh, you get access to our gym. You can use the fax machine in the business center. You can use the telephone to make outgoing calls. It's like stuff you don't use anyway, but they force you into these resort fees. You have no other option. I just stayed in Phoenix over the uh, holiday break, and there was an amenity fee, and it came with a tour of the art in the hotel. Of course, I'm not going to fucking do that. Uh, in-room coffee, whoop-de-doo. You did get a free coffee downstairs at the bar. That was nice. They also had two bottles of uh, Fiji water in the refrigerator, your in-room refrigerator. <laughs> I didn't drink them while staying, but I fucking took them because I paid $25. I'm like, I never drink Fiji water. This is my chance. If it's free, you might as well. I called them ahead of time. I was like, is this really free? Because you never see Fiji water included. <laughs> it would no. be nice. It would be nice, too, if they said, like, you know, they gave you the option to opt out because it's like, <laughs> if I'm on vacation, I'm probably not going to go to the gym. So why am I yeah. paying for that? I'd rather just have yeah. you like lock my my key card out of the gym. 
And that's how they get you because they require these. You have no other choice. But to your point, you're right. Like we um, the last time I went to Vegas, we you know, it's like you always forget about the added fee. Right. And so then you go in thinking like, well, everybody like has decided on a budget, a nightly budget. And you think that you're hitting that budget. It's like, surprise, actually, (laughs) you know, it's $200 more because of these hidden fees. So, And those go up, by the way. They have been raising the resort fees in Vegas. Um, When we started moving out here, I was tempted to stay on the strip because, hey, when in Rome. But then I was looking at the resort fees. I'm like, I cannot justify this. So if you stay just off the strip, if you just stay west of the 15, which runs parallel to the strip, you can get like a Hilton Garden Inn and those don't have resort fees. It it sucks to have to walk further to the strip. But if you can't stand those, that is an option for you. They used to piss me off at like uh, Comic-Con too, because they were already jacking up the prices for all of these hotels per room. And so then in addition to that, to tack on, you know. The resort fee or like the, what is it? The, um, they have like, some cities have like a tourism fee, a tourism tax. Oh yeah. 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 So it's like, it's a different name for the same thing, but. And those, I guess, go to the city. It doesn't technically go to the hotel. But still, if you're a tourist there, you're already going to spend money in the city. And it's also deceiving because you think you're getting a, a better rate. You could just say, well, why not just build these fees into the nightly rates? It's so that they can lower their nightly rates and then they look better against other hotels when actually they cost more than you think. Pam just reminded me, actually, um, there are a number of countries that and this isn't the exact same thing as a private company charging you a fee. But there are a number of countries that um, you have to pay an exit fee, an exit tax to leave the country. If you're a tourist, um, Costa Rica is one of those. When I lived there, anytime I left the country, I had to pay $26. That's such a specific number. Yeah, I don't know what it is now. Um, But I was also thinking about um, certain fees affiliated with gym memberships. I remember during the pandemic, what a lot of gyms were doing, what LA Fitness was doing, I know, is they would let you pause your membership if you weren't going to be coming to the gym, obviously because of COVID. But in order to keep your account active, they charged a $10 fee per month, like a $10 pause fee. So they knew you weren't coming to the gym. You weren't making use of your membership at all. But they were like, oh, if you want to keep your membership active and not have your prices go up when you come back, we're going to charge you $10 a month. Airbnb, they have the cleaning fees and the service fees. Cleaning fees are particularly hard for me to swallow. And this is why I don't normally go with Airbnb, because the cleaning fees are built into hotel prices. Although now, because of post-COVID, this post-COVID world, hotels are trying to get away with not doing nightly room service or, or housekeeping. Um and then Airbnbs will have you take out the trash and water the plants and do all these other things. It's like, what What am I paying for if, if I have to do all this work to maintain the house as well? Also, I feel like more often than not, when I go to Airbnbs, I'm like, did they clean? <laughs> right. If they did, they didn't do a good job. Yeah, nope. exactly. And again, fold this in. It's just, it's all, it's all deceiving. Now, Airbnb recently announced they will begin showing these fees and the nightly rates up front 
because this was pissing a lot of people off. You'd be like, oh, 149 a night for this beautiful cabin in the woods. And then you click in and it's like an extra $100 a night all of a sudden between the service fee and the cleaning fee and the taxes. Uh, convenience fees are another big one. I'd like to see the Biden administration fight. One place you'll see these are when you're booking movie tickets. I looked on Fandango for two tickets. The convenience fee was $1.98 per ticket on $11.99 tickets. Fandango says they do this because they don't make any money on the ticket, but they do make money through advertising and surely deals with movie theaters to rank movies and theaters higher on their app and website. So it's not like you're not making any money at all. You are making money. You don't need to do these convenience fees. But then I went to AMC's own website because I knew they charge convenience fees. And they say this fee helps to ensure you can purchase tickets conveniently online before they sell out, to select your ideal seats, to order food and beverage in advance, and to skip lines at the theater. Bitch, please. So they both have their own excuses, and they're both probably bullshit. The last time, actually the last several times I've been to the movies since the pandemic, there's no staff. We'll buy tickets and we'll walk in. There's nobody checking tickets. So I'm like, why the fuck did I buy the ticket? I could have just walked in. Because of the assigned seating, we're self-policing ourselves now. I think that might be part of it. Speaking of that, the other... uh, Oh, when I went to see Black Panther, I... I had a uh, like a panic moment and I thought that I had dropped one of my cards in the theater. But by the time I went back, there was already a line out the door for people trying to go in to the next showing. At least three theater employees saw me duck under the velvet rope and like <laughs> run past them. <laughs> They didn't know if I was just, you know, trying to score a free ticket. Nobody questioned why I skipped the line. I did not stop t- to talk to any of them. So like, to your point, you know, and not not to say that, you know, I'm sure that those people don't get paid enough to like, run after somebody that looks a little bit crazy. <laughs> you didn't look crazy, Pam. I'm sure you did not. I don't blame them for not caring. They're not making enough money to care. I see people like bring in like whole spreads of food. To the theater. <laughs> they do not give a shit. Yeah, what are they going to do? Fight it? I'm with those people who choose not to fight it. That's good to know, though, because I've contemplated like s- sneaking stuff in, but not sneaking it, just like kind of carrying it in. And I always get paranoid. Yeah. Sometimes I, I don't plan. I, like, I try not to do this because I it's just like ingrained in me like to just not. But like, I sometimes I just don't plan ahead and I'll just like forget to bring a bag big enough to hold like my coffee thermos because usually I'm going... In the morning, like, oh, I yeah. like to have my coffee at the movie theater. <laughs> <laughs> but they, this, now, like- if there was a f- if there was a fee to promise me that not a single motherfucker would be opening their phone during the movie or talking, I would pay that fee. That's the convenience fee you want. The peace fee. Let's call it. We <laughs> promise we'll have someone in there watching, making sure nobody's talking, making sure nobody's on their phone. I would happily pay for that. But none of this other stuff is particularly convenient to me. It's just a way to squeeze more money out of us. And I say, stop it. Everybody stop it. We can't take it anymore. Biden, please do something about this. Thank you. Any other fees uh, annoying y'all? Co-pays. Co-pays. But that's a yeah, that's an entirely a separate yeah. conversation. <laughs> but I feel like we covered the big ones. Come on, Biden. Get that next. <laughs> Co-pays. 
Well, coming up on our Patreon today, we're going to talk about alternative social media platforms and why millennials are equipped to deal with a potential loss of Twitter. And don't forget, we had a recent Muggle Suck edition of After Dark with our old AIM conversations, and that one was an instant hit with the listeners who were listening live. So do check that out, and we'll do that again with with AIM conversations in the weeks and months ahead. Time for some recommendations. We're talking about fees today and prices going up. Get this. There's actually something that has gone down in price in the last year. It's TSA PreCheck. This is a beautiful thing in America, beautiful program from the TSA in America. You breeze through this pre-check line after you pay this fee that you got to pay once every three years, I believe it is. Well, the fee for registering for pre-check has gone down $7. A five-year membership, sorry, I said a few years, it's a five-year membership, now costs $78. This is so worth it if you fly with any regularity. The pre-check line, at least in my experience, has always been very short compared to the normal lines. And by the way, dozens of credit cards will actually cover your pre-check fee as one of their benefits. So look out for that in your credit card benefits or when looking around for a new credit card. Seems only fair that they should reduce their fees given how ineffective the TSA is. <laughs> I Yeah, I yeah. I do love pre-check, though. The, the, the lines are... Very short. I'm right there with you. I'm actually thinking about getting it myself. I just always think it's funny that they're like, this bitch paid $78. She's not up to anything. She paid money. (laughs) (laughs) She got a background check, you know. Yeah, you got to go through a background check. They take a picture of you. Maybe they do fingerprints. It's been a while since I've done it, so I can't remember, but it is great. Um, I want to recommend something that I talked about early in the episode If you are like me and your Twitter feed is just a fucking disaster of grifters right now, go on a blocking spree. Man, I blocked more people last night than I think I've ever blocked in my entire history on Twitter. I generally don't block people because I don't care, but it felt really good to eliminate like the Candace Owens and the Jim Jordans and the Jordan Petersons out of my fucking feed. Feels great. And I want to recommend Good Molecules Instant Cleansing Balm. Uh, this is like $15 at Alta, and Alta always has coupons. So I would definitely recommend trying it out if you're looking for uh, something that's going to just like specifically, I really like this because I like waterproof mascara and waterproof eyeliner, and this just like completely melts it off, but it doesn't leave your skin feeling grimy, even though it's like an oil based product and you know, you're supposed to use it before you put water on your face so that it has time to break down all of the stuff that you have on your face if you have stuff on your face. Um, But I thought I would recommend this specifically because we're going into the holidays and this is when people like to sometimes do more elaborate makeup looks or they like to use glitter and things that are notoriously hard to get off your face. So if you're looking for a really nice little uh, cleanser that's just going to make your skincare routine at the end of the night way easier. I would recommend checking this out. Also, it's scent free. And it's really great if you have dry skin too, because I've been struggling with some dry patches on my skin. And it's super gentle. And it's not going to like strip away any of the moisture on your face as well. So recommend looking into this if that is a problem that you struggle with as well. That is good to know. Good tip. All right. Well, make sure you're following the show in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And if you use Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we would really appreciate a review. 
If you have any feedback, you can write to millennialshow at gmail.com or you can use the contact form or anonymous confessional on millennialshow.com. And finally, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're Millennial Show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And then over on TikTok, we are Millennial Pod. No more social media accounts for now, unless one of these others we're about to talk about in After Dark really blows up, I suppose. (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. See you next time. Bye. Bye.